First Timothy chapter 5 this morning, if you would turn in your Bibles to that text. In Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, 1 Timothy, as most of you know, is known as one of the pastoral letters, the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. This is where Paul is focusing on the management of the churches. And, and Timothy and Titus are not technically pastors, but they are in charge of setting up pastors and in charge of uh, telling the churches how they're supposed to pattern the ministry. And it's interesting that in all three of these letters, Paul makes much about the family. And here is an example at the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Paul instructs Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So he says here, there are to be differences of respect and authority within the congregation of a New Testament church. But these are not based on any secular model of the workplace or government. These principles of respect and authority are modeled after the family. Following Paul's instruction as as, as a pastor, uh, I am to think of you who are my peers, who are younger, as my brothers and sisters. And those of you who are quite a bit older as fathers and mothers. When I was a younger pastor, I had a lot of fathers and mothers in my church, especially mothers. In fact, I'm looking at one right now who was one of my mothers at Bethany Bible Church, and she's here this morning. Happy Mother's Day. And, and, and that's what I thought of when I thought of the congregation, uh, mothers and fathers. Now, as I've gotten older, I'm still not really ancient or anything yet. My kids think I am. Uh, but I'm not there yet. But, but I, I, I'm, growing, I'm growing with respect to how many brothers and sisters I have, and I have fewer mothers and fathers. But, but Timothy's instruction here is that we should regard one another in this way. But I think that this principle should apply not to just pastors, but to every church member. We should think of others in the congregation in terms of our relationship as family. Not simply because we're supposed to get along in some nebulous way, but because we belong to the same spiritual household. The household of God. That's what Paul calls the church back in chapter 3, verse 15. He says he's writing to Timothy so that he and those in the congregation know how they ought to behave in the household of God. And we are truly a household. We're a family. We're a clan. Because we are all related to the same family member, the Lord Jesus Jesus Christ is the progenitor of our clan, and that makes us family. And within the family, certain behavior is honored and encouraged, while other behavior is discouraged and condemned, like any family. We don't do that in this house, okay? You do do this in this house, and hopefully we all grew up that way. That's why when we were growing up, parents are always instructing us what to do and how to do it, what's allowed, what's not allowed. And in a Christian home, the ultimate reason for honorable behavior is not so that we can look good as a family, but so that ultimately we can bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we keep reading this passage, we find that Paul calls attention to a certain group of people in the household of God in order to honor them and encourage proper family behavior in the congregation. And this group is none other than than 
widows, women who have been married, whose children are now gone. In other words, those who have nobody left to care for them. So this is the passage we're looking at here, starting in verse 3. He says, uh, honor widows who are truly widows. These are significant members of the congregation. In fact, he already said we're supposed to treat older women as mothers. Well, this is a significant group of mothers in the church, these older women, widows in the congregation. They're mothers of the church, which means that in the words that follow, Paul is honoring a certain type of mother for the congregation to consider. All mothers can benefit by this. All members can benefit by this. But he's focusing on these older women. And we're going to read what he says all the way to verse 16. And I'll warn you, there are, there are things that he says here, if you're not used to this passage, that need some explaining. And we're, there's no time to really explain everything that he says here in this text. But I want you to appreciate the full context. So let's keep reading here. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of God. In other words, if, if, if a widow doesn't, if her husband has gone, but she has children that can take care of her, let them take care of her. That is right and proper. But he says, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without approach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled. If she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnations for having abandoned their former faith. Which doesn't mean necessarily he's saying he doesn't he doesn't think that they should marry after they've made this commitment, but apparently there were younger widows who were taking these, these vows of commitment to Christ and then breaking them because they wanted to get married. And Paul says, don't vow something to the Lord that you're not going to keep. That's probably the background here, but we're not going to have time to get into that this morning. Verse 13 says, besides that, these same younger women that he's warning about don't fall into this. He says, they learn to be idlers, going around from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have the younger women, widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, this is an intriguing passage in Paul's letters because he's so specific. And he gives us insight in this passage, not only to what's going on in the church, but really what's going on in the first century culture that the believers are living in. You noticed uh, that Paul 
draws a distinction in this passage between those who are widows and those who are truly widows. The widow has lost her husband, but still has other family who can truly help her. But the one who is truly a widow, Paul says in verse 5, is left all alone. She has no other family to help her. And if an older woman in that culture were left all alone with no family and no husband to help her, she would indeed be in trouble. She would usually have to supply her needs in, in, in the only one way she knew of, which would be to beg for it in that culture. So Paul says that if a widow does indeed have surviving family, then they need to take care of her. In fact, that's the immediate application of verse 8, where Paul says, uh, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Actually, verse 16 there. In other words, you show your faith in God uh, by your love and care for those whom God has placed in your sphere of power and influence to provide for. And in verse 16, you notice that he says to believing women who are often the caregivers that if they have relatives who are widows, they should be caring for them. But let not the church be burdened so it may care for those who are truly widows. That's not because the church has no compassion and doesn't want to help, but it's because it's right in the sight of God to care for your family. And if that principle is obeyed, it frees up the church's resources to help those who truly need it who do not have anyone else at home to care for them. So only those who are truly widows, he says, are to be enrolled in this special list that is placed on the list of those who have no one to care for them. And those who have no prospects for marriage, notice they are 60 or older, verse 9, which was considered to be in that culture past the marriageable age. Maybe not in this culture today, but back then it was. And you notice that having no family to care for them is not the only stipulation that Paul lays out in this passage for those widows who are designated for special care. There are many spiritual stipulations laid out. Notice, faithful to her husband. And in verse 10, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. So these honorable mothers of the church are not simply those who are left alone. They are also spiritual examples to the congregation. That might lead you to ask, well, what about the other widows who need special care, but they don't meet those spiritual qualifications? Does the church ignore them? Well, I don't think that's what Paul is saying here at all. He's not telling the widows that they have to score a certain score you know, on the, on the quiz of, of spiritual activity before the church is going to pitch in and help them. Rather, he's telling them that not only is it just and proper for the church to take care of these, these poor women because they can no longer provide for themselves, it is also right and proper that they do so because of their invaluable testimony to the congregation of what a godly mother should look like. Not only do they do this to offer an example for the younger generations to follow, but their spiritual testimony, and this is really important, their spiritual testimony helps create a culture in the church where godliness can flourish and where the enemy cannot find a foothold. That is why Paul says in verse 14 that he wants the younger widows to live in such a way that they will give no occasion to the adversary for slander. 
So, that's a big picture. What's going on in this text? I think it's this. Paul, I think, is identifying those who are truly widows and commending their testimony to the congregation for mutual encouragement. The believers care for these mothers of the church in order to show honor to those who have the reputation for remaining faithful and obedient to the Lord. And they, in turn, are a blessing to the congregation by their testimony. A testimony is a powerful thing to maintain. It can be used by God to shape and guide other lives in profound ways, even when the one who has the testimony is unaware of the impact. Maybe you as an older believer have had a younger believer come to you and say, you know, I, I, you might not know this, but your example has really been an encouragement to me. And you were like, I had no idea. That's the power of a testimony, of a life lived consistently following the Lord. In fact, the influential testimony of some godly mothers are legendary. You can hardly talk about this category of legendary motherly examples without thinking of Susanna Wesley. Maybe some of you have read her full story. She was born in London in 1699. She was the mother of John and Charles Wesley, the leaders of what was then a new movement known as Methodism, out of which came the Methodist Church. And I know there's a, the, the broad brush sort of Methodist mainline church, which is really, in general, sort of walked away from the same declaration of the gospel it used to have. But there's still many Methodist churches left who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Methodism in its history has been faithful to the gospel of Christ. So she had Charles and John. That is probably one of her biggest claims to fame. But she also had 17 other children. That's 19 and all. So happy Mother's Day, right? And if you think bringing 19 children into the world is a little extra, uh, Susanna herself was the 25th child born in her family. No wonder we can trace Mother's Day in England back to the 1600s. I, was, I, I saw a, st- a former student on campus, and he had a lot of brothers and sisters with him. And I said, you guys a homeschool family? How many are you? And he said, we have 11 I was like, you know, we, we, didn't, we didn't have to buy the really big, long white minivan. We just had the, like the shorter van, you know, uh, for, for our family. But think of, think of Susanna's family. You'd have to have a fleet of, of minivans, you know, uh, for that family. But Susanna had this happy and affluent childhood. By all accounts, her father was a well-known minister in London. So Susanna grew up being taught the gospel, and she put her faith in Christ at a very early age. And she also, as a child developed an unusual hunger for spiritual knowledge. And she was extremely diligent in her walk with God and and really a remarkable, intelligent woman. She learned Latin and Greek and she taught her children that later on. She once said, I will tell you what rule I observed when I was young and too much addicted to childish diversions. Can we say we live in a culture that has childish diversions today? remarkably so compared to hers. But she said, I was too much addicted to childish diversion. She said, I would never spend more time in mere recreation in one day than I had spent in private religious devotions. Her life became difficult when she was 19 years old because that is when she became the wife of Samuel Wesley, a young Anglican minister who always had great plans but could never seem to make things go his way. 
He took small ministry positions. One is a chaplain on board of a sea vessel, which took him away from home while Susanna lived in a boarding house. But he could never make enough money for them to live on it, so they were always going further and further into debt. After their first son Samuel was born, her husband took a church in South Ornsby, which is a small farming community near the boggy English moors. And Susanna moved into a small mud hut that had no glass behind the shutters. Her next six children were born in that little hut, all within her first eight years of marriage. The first died. Uh, Emilia, her next child, lived, but she lost her first set of twins who lived only a month. Next, she gave birth to Susanna, whom they called Suki, and then to Mary, who was nicknamed Molly, and Molly was permanently maimed because a maid accidentally dropped her when she was a child. To alleviate their debt, her husband accepted two additional churches, which kept him away from home much of the time. And eventually, he took a more lucrative ministry at Epworth, where Susanna would live most of the rest of her life. Uh, But her husband's travel expenses ate up a lot of their money. So he tried his hand at farming to supplement his income, but that ended up in disaster, and they went further into debt. He also spent a lot of time and money trying to write a commentary on the book of Job, which ate up a lot of finances, and the book never saw publication. In fact, the only publications we have from the Wesleys are what Susanna wrote herself and never meant to be in publication. At Epworth, they had another girl whose name was Hetty, and over the next five years, Susanna gave birth to five more children including one set of twins, but every one of those children died in infancy. One of them was smothered by the carelessness of another maid. Then one day, Susanna's husband, Samuel, became deeply offended at his wife. He did not hear her say amen. After a prayer he had made for King William of Orange, who was a debatable king in England at that point, Susanna defended herself by saying that she did not believe William was the rightful king. So Samuel vowed never to see Susanna again, and he completely left her, uh, not that he had never done that before, and she was expecting another child at the time. He left her, he left his church, and, and for at least six months, some historians say it was more than a year before he came back. While he was gone, Susanna gave birth to the girl that she was expecting, and King William had died, and Queen Anne had come to the throne, and I don't know whether it was to spite her husband, but since he wasn't around, she named her daughter Anne after Queen Anne. But then their house burned and they lost about two-thirds of everything they owned. That at least brought him back to them and he worked to repair the house. But at that time, Susanna gave birth to John. You think this is the end, but there's more. Uh, Later, her husband was thrown into debtor's prison. Susanna pleaded for him and he was released, but he came out of the prison with a new idea. He was going to learn Hindustani and he was going to take the family to India and they were going to become missionaries to India. And thankfully that did not work out. Uh, I mean, I don't want to say that foreign missions is bad, but I'm saying in his case, they would have all drowned at sea maybe or something like that on the way. Then the next year, Martha was born. Then just before Christmas the next year, Charles was born. This is Charles Wesley. He was so tiny, they never thought he would live. They had to keep him warm near the fire to, to get him to stay alive. And he lived and became one of the, the, the greatest men of God that God ever raised up in our modern time. But then when Charles and his older sister were only toddlers and Susanna was expecting her 19th child, a fire broke out at midnight and the entire house burnt to the ground with everything in it. Miraculously, all the children survived, even though a few of them had to be tossed out the windows. 
And a month later, Kezia was born. And most of the other children had to be placed in other homes for a while where they got a house built. And this put them further into debt. So moms, if you ever think mothering is difficult, okay, and it is difficult, take your inspiration from Susanna Wesley. But you know how Susanna is remembered? She is remembered as the mother of Methodism. Not because she was a preacher or a theologian, but because simply of the influence of her remarkable discipline and spiritual character that shaped her children. Two boys in particular, John and Charles. She maintained a life of devotion toward God and she instilled in her children, despite of everything that was going on, instilled in her children this profound respect for the Lord and a desire to follow him. And she poured her life into those children with a very particular method. And it's not without accident that this Methodism comes from what John and Charles learned from their mother. In fact, when she was writing to her husband in one of his absences, she said, I am a woman, but I am also the mistress of a large family. And though the superior charge of the souls contained in it lies upon you, husband, yet in your long absence, I cannot but look upon every soul you leave under my charge as a talent committed to me under a trust. She said, I am not a man nor a minister, yet as a mother. I felt I ought to do more than I had yet done. I resolved to begin with my own children, in which I observe the following method. I take a proportion of time as I can spare every night to discourse with each child apart. On Monday, I talk with Molly. On Tuesday, with Hetty. On Wednesday, with Nancy. Thursday, with Jackie. Friday, with Patty. Saturday, with Charles. And the letter continues. Uh, in Charles Wesley's writing, he tells about his mother working with one child and John is sitting over crying because she won't pay attention to him. And she says, honey, just cry for a little while. It'll be your turn in, in a little bit. But she kept this method uh, like, like that throughout their whole life. And it was the influence of that very particular approach to everything that shaped the lives of her children. In fact, John Wesley, when he was only six or seven, declared that he would never get married. And the reason is, he said, he would, could not believe he could ever find a woman like his mother. Proverbs thirty-one twenty-eight says of the virtuous woman, her children shall rise up and call her blessed. And that is what Paul is getting at here in this text. By setting forth these godly virtues of the mothers, the older women of the church, he is encouraging a kind of spiritual maturity that will help to shape the household of God. And if we look closely at the passage, I think that we can discern two essential testimonies that these mothers had that influenced the church and put them in a position of honor. The first one is the testimony of their faith toward God, and the second is their testimony of love toward others. And we can discern this all throughout the text. I'm just going to focus on a couple of places in the text where we see this. First of all, their testimony of faith toward God. And if you look then at verses 5 through 7 again, Paul says, she who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. And it's, it's an expression that simply means she always does this. It's part of the fabric of her life. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. There's the contrast. 
And then Paul punctuates this by saying, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. Here is a woman who is known for her trust in God and her fervent, consistent prayers, prayers for her family, prayers for the people of God, prayers for the ministry of God. And notice Paul says nothing about her leading the charge, launching a special ministry, writing devotional material, things of this nature. Not that she couldn't or shouldn't, but that's not where he puts the emphasis. He says there is incredible value just in her living out who God has called her to be. Regardless of how invested she is in ministry endeavors, she is a source of spiritual strength to God's people through her example of consistent trust and hope through her prayers, which enter the throne room of heaven. I am genuinely impressed by the competency and uh, talents that the women of God have, whom God has raised up within his church. We have them here that God uses to minister to his people. But I'll tell you what, what has impacted me, I think, more over the years are the multiple visits to modest living rooms and bedsides of godly mothers of the church facing difficulties of old age, perhaps nearing the end of life, but brimming with hope and life, constant in trust, faithful in much prayer for me, for the church, for God's people, And I always go away from that house or that hospital room strengthened and a little more sober and a little more prayerful and a little more mindful of what really matters in life and more resolved to know God and to serve God. That is an impact. That is an influence. And that is what the apostle emphasizes in this passage. That's why he's talking about these virtues, because they need to be modeled by each of us, but learning to practice them comes through the impact of personal relationships as we follow those who are living them out. By contrast, think of the despair and the discouragement it would be if these mothers of the church did not have this testimony. If they had the testimony of the women that we read about in verse 6, the self-indulgence whom Paul said, if you live this way, you're dead even while you live. That is a thought-provoking, startling statement. She who is self-indulgent, in other words, extravagant, that's what that means, seeking for herself a measure of ease and comfort and luxury, is actually dead even even though she's alive. And Paul is referring to those widows who have flitted away their lives in pleasure-seeking, or those younger widows who were living for pleasure at the time. He mentions them later in the passage. But Paul's description of these ladies reminds us of the fantasy that the world is continually parading before us of how we can find enjoyment and fulfillment through material possessions, new clothes, jewelry, nice cars, big houses filled with nice things, vacations, to exotic places, lots of money to spend. We're constantly bombarded with the idea that we have to seek this kind of pleasure and that there is a product or a possession that will fulfill this need that we have. In fact, David Wells, in one of his books he wrote in the 90s, explains that all advertisements, he says, are really subtle gospel messages, promising us salvation from condemnation of not having the most convenient or the most popular or the most dependable or important or enjoyable things in our lives. We're not pretty enough, or we're not successful enough, or healthy enough, 
We don't have the right vibe, right? The, right? the right context. So we need to find salvation in this hair product or this entertainment or this car or this prescription or whatever. Why do the marketers think that they can get our attention this way? Because they know that most Americans live for something they don't have. Especially when we're told we owe it to ourselves. We deserve this. We have to realize our dreams as if our dreams are worth realizing, right? But this is not life, Paul says. This is living death because the end of that path is not the true source of life, eternal life. In fact, Paul says, in essence, the only one who is on this path is dead already. Jesus says this in Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? It doesn't matter how much stuff you get in this world or how successful or popular you are. It's all a shadow of the real world. And our hope and confidence needs to be in that world because we belong to the God of that world. And Paul is saying here, the honored mothers of the church remind us continually of this truth. But there's a second essential category of these mothers' testimony that influenced the church and placed them in a position of honor. If the first is their testimony to our faith in God, then the second is their testimony of love toward others. And what are some of the ways that honorable mothers of the church show this testimony? The first two are really striking against the backdrop of what is going on in our culture right now. And I want to just focus on the elements that we find in verses 9 and 10, where he says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. The first element of their testimony of love toward others is their marital fidelity, the wife of one husband. Some of you know back in chapter 3, verse 2, Paul talks to those who are pastors, those who are uh, the episcopoi, the, the overseers of the congregation, the elders of the congregation, that they must be the husband of one wife. And the expression in Greek is, is a one-woman man, faithful to one woman. Well, there is a mirror image here of that interesting phrase in chapter 5. Literally, it says here that the widow must have been a one-man woman. Same expression, different gender. In other words, she has shown herself to be faithful to her husband. That in itself is a model of self-sacrifice and service and loyalty. And those of us who are husbands know that it is a ministry of self-sacrifice and service and loyalty, especially in the context of first century Christianity. In that culture, most often marriages were arranged. There was typically no falling in love approach to the marriage contract. That may be the reason Paul instructs the older women of the church in Titus to teach the younger women to love their husbands. It's something that they perhaps had to learn But beyond that, in in these fledgling days of the church, many of the husbands were actually leaving their wives because the wives had come to faith in Christ and the husbands wanted nothing to do with it. It was a situation so pervasive that Paul talks about it when he's writing the Corinthians in chapter 7, helping wives process what abandonment looks like and yet staying faithful to their husbands and faithful to the Lord. They had a lot going on in this culture when it came to faithfulness to their husbands. And things are no better today. In fact, they may be worse because the very concept of marriage, as we know, is under direct assault. 
And can you see then how faithfulness to marriage as God designed it, which is one man and one woman for life, encourages us to be a church where truth flourishes and steals us against the enemy's attack. It's only going to be in churches like this where the next generation sees what faithful biblical marriage really looks like. I really like what Neil Postman said in his book called The Disappearance of Childhood. He said the only ones who are going to be left to rescue the culture are those who rebel against the culture. And that's what we are, not in the bad sense of the word rebel, but we stand against the culture because we're standing for truth. All we have to do is stand for something and we automatically stand against something else. In chapter 3, verse 15, uh, in, in, in 1 Timothy, Paul calls the church the pillar and buttress of the truth, which includes two ideas that are similar to what a pillar does. We, we hold the, the truth firm and we hold it forth. And this is what we need to do, especially with truth that is being erased in our culture. It means that if truth is going to be completely missing from every segment of the culture, if in our ungodly world they erase truth from every corner of the culture, there's still at least one place people ought to be able to find the truth alive and well, and it is within the congregation of God's people. The honorable mothers of the church play an indispensable role in creating the kind of truth culture that makes this possible. Don't underestimate this. Don't take it for granted. It is important. It is indispensably important that what God has called us to do and what God has called us to live out is clearly seen because of the truth vacuum that is happening in this culture. Paul says, has she been faithful and loyal to support and serve her husband? That she's an example to the body of Christ. And we should celebrate and encourage marriage in the body of Christ and celebrate when we have these anniversaries of 40, 50, and 60 years. That is remarkable in our culture today. Now, look with me at verse 10. Paul says that these widows, these honorable mothers of the church, should be having a reputation for good works. You see that in verse 10? And then look at the end of the verse. He says that she has devoted herself to every good work. So what you have here is a little list of good works. And following the literary style of the day, Paul tells us this, this is a list of good works by saying it at the beginning of the list and saying it at the end of the list. I think that when some of us hear the term good works, we think of this as a negative thing because it's been drilled into our brains. We're not saved by good works, right? We're saved by Christ alone. And amen to that. But we shouldn't think this way because good works are expected in a believer's life. In fact, they are the evidence that we are truly believers. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, which God himself prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what we see here is that the honorable mothers of the church model for the congregation. They flesh out for all to see the kind of good works that God has prepared for them. What are these good works? Well, there are four of them listed here. Like most lists of the Bible, this is a definitive list. It's not exhaustive. It's not the only works women are called to do or that they're honored for. Oh, nor is she disqualified if she doesn't perform one of them. For instance, having brought up children. That's the first one in this list, right? Not all uh, mothers of the church, the older women, the models of the church have had children of their own. Still, Paul says that 
One of the good works an honorable woman in the church could exhibit is her maternal care if she has brought up children. It continues the premium that Paul places on motherhood and family in the pastoral letters. The phrase brought up children translates a Greek compound word which could be translated child nurturer. It refers to someone who demonstrates appropriate love and care. In fact, the noun form of this verb is used in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 as nursing mother. Thus, the honorable woman of the church commends herself by having the testimony that not only has she given birth to children, but that she has nurtured children. And once again, especially in our culture today, people ought to find the truth about childbirth and the nurturing of children in congregations like ours. The enemy seeks to turn everything God has created backwards, inside out, upside down. He's seeking to do that to marriage. He's seeking to do that to the idea of childbearing because of of the abortion laws that are going all throughout our country. And because the truth is no longer taught in the culture, how many women have abortions because it is the more convenient and expedient choice in their minds to live this self-indulgent life he talks about in this text. Because they're told a lie. We can no longer take it for granted what a blessing it is in a a church body like this where any believing woman, young or old, would be horrified at that thought. I praise God that there is that horror, but we can't take it for granted anymore. We have to be very thankful for it. And with this, so many other truths being denied in our culture, twisted in our culture, I'm really amazed. I've been thinking about this this week. With everything else going on, with, with a dumpster fire in the culture, I'm amazed that Roe v. Wade is this close to being overturned. And 13 states already have trigger laws in place if Roe v. Wade is overturned where their state law will automatically make abortion illegal in their state. I don't believe South Carolina has one of these trigger laws, but we're one of the states that's up to change the law in one way or the other if the legislators move very quickly to act. And we can rejoice in that because it means there must be a lot of people out there still in our nation who still oppose killing unborn children. But we also have to realize that even if Roe v. Wade is overturned, this is a legal matter. It does not mean that the battle for truth has ended, nor can we let our guard down. The battle for truth is not won on the Supreme Court of the United States. The battle for truth is won in the Lord's church, which preaches and teaches and models truth. Again, that is why the faithful women of God, the honorable members of the church, must play out the role that we cannot do without. This is so essential. Now, I'm going to hurry up and finish this list because I'm looking at our time here. But we'll see next their gracious hospitality, if they have shown hospitality. This is another compound word, which means one who receives strangers. The word stranger has this wide range of meetings from foreigner to guest to friend who stays. In other words, she has the testimony of genuine love for others, opening her home, wanting to help others, She cares for people both inside and outside the assembly. It also mentions her humble service. If she has washed the feet of the saints, I think it is likely a reference to the actual literal washing of feet actually here, which was a service to visitors in that hot, dusty climate, which means this was an act of love and humility. 
since Paul specifically says the saints' feet, he's probably thinking of the act that women would perform in the early church when the congregation would gather in homes and the believers would come in from the dusty streets. We don't do foot washing in our culture today, but the principle here is the honorable mother has a reputation for the willingness to perform humble service, things that nobody knows is going on, and yet she is taking care of it. And praise God for that. And then he says something about their compassionate assistance if she has cared for the afflicted. Probably this refers to the help she has given to those under pressure, perhaps those under the pressure of persecution. She is qualified for honor among the saints of God because she has helped those in distress. And in doing so, she has identified with their suffering. These are the honorable mothers of the church with a testimony of witness of faith toward God and a testimony of love toward others. I wonder if we could reflect this morning, what is our personal testimony today? What do people think and know you to be? What does God know you to be? What example are you offering to the body of Christ? That's the big principle here. If we're going to disciple one another, if we're going to have others following our example, if we're going to build relationships where we're following Christ together, we have to live out what God teaches. We can hold our relationship with God only as a commodity, a mere portion of our lives, so that we can still use some of our time for pleasure and making choices depending on what we think will bring us happiness or popularity or prestige with little concern for walking in the truth and bearing witness of the truth. Or we can live a life of submission to God, truly devoting ourselves to Him, living by biblical principles and always seeking God's will to be done. And you know what plays a huge role in how we are shaped to live one way or the other? It's those influences that God has provided for us, our models, our heroes, our teachers. There's, there's a lot of influencers out there in the world, right? Uh, the world of business, the world of sports, the world of entertainment, a lot of influencers. But the Lord wants us to look not out there, but right here for our models and examples Within the community of faith, this is where we find the true examples of how to live life forever. And the godly women of the church, especially the mothers, the older women who have walked with God all these years, they are our examples. And we praise God for them today. I praise the Lord that we have these examples at Gateway. Let's not take this for granted. Let's pray that God will continue to bless and build up our moms and that we would be encouraged by their example and also walk after God the way they are showing us it ought to be done. Father, thank you.